Is the world enough? Today, we're taking a look at part two of how events in the real world and other movies find their way into spy movies. This is Dan Silvestri. And Tom Pizzato. Of SpyMovieNavigator.com, the worldwide community of spy movie fans. Spy movie podcasts, videos, discussions, and more. Hey, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and Instagram, too. And send us a question or a suggestion for a podcast via Facebook or from our website. Just click the big red button on the right that says send us a voicemail, and we may include your question on one of our shows. Hey, Tom, let me just throw this in before we get started. We read a lot of books on spies, real spies and movie spies, so we can get a little more insight into the spy movies that we're yeah, having fun with, right? That's that's how we get some of the little fun facts we come up with. Yeah, so I just finished this book this week that I, I think this guy, the author, has a unique approach, and he looks at Bond from a unique vantage point. It's called His World Never Dies, The Evolution of James Bond by Dave Holcomb. And it's a pretty damn good book. I liked it a lot because we read a lot of them. And, and that one just came out, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a brand new book. And it's kind of a cool title considering Ian just announced the new Bond film is going to be called No Time to Die. Uh, Dave, this guy, the author, weaves a story on how Bond has evolved over the decades with some unique insights. And a there's a treatment of sexism and race and all that kind of stuff. And a very interesting concept of how history and the Bond series goes through what is called, he calls this uh, history gyre. And it suggests that history does not only repeat itself, but that it moves in this evolutionary circle. And Dave suggests that the Bond films go through the same evolutionary cycle. So circle, it, it, it was like, Cool that he's tying these things together, and the whole book is all about this. So it's woven through this whole book. So if he's got sexism and racism in there, there have been a lot of changes through yeah. the years over Bond and how, how those are topics are treated. So I'm, I'm going to have to take a look at that book. Yeah. I mean, it's really a great, great book. I really enjoyed reading it. I'd highly recommend it. And you can find it on Amazon.com. Just search for His World Never Dies. And are we going to put a link it. on our website for it? We yeah, we'll put a link on our website under our article section and because we like the book a lot, and we think uh, you guys out there would enjoy it as well. So take a look for it. Uh, What's his, the title again? His World Never Dies, The Evolution of James Bond by Dave Holcomb. All right, I'll get on that one. In this part of our podcast series on how real-world events and other movies could affect and work their way into the spy movies, we're going to continue with the 1971 film Diamonds Are Forever, and move ahead from there. Diamonds are forever. Are All right, we're going to move on to Diamonds Are Forever, 1971. Published by Ian Fleming in 1956 as his fourth James Bond novel, and Ian Productions made it into their seventh James Bond 007 movie, introduced in 1971. Here Bond, Sean Connery, comes back, infiltrates a diamond smuggling ring, and prevents Blofeld and Spectre from developing a space-based laser weapon with these diamonds that could blow things up. Blofeld was going to sell it to the highest bidder, so Bond had to stop the plot. So Ian Fleming writes Diamonds Are Forever only nine years after a woman copywriter for an ad agency wrote A Diamond Is Forever for a De Beers ad campaign in 1947, and it's been a De Beers campaign ever since. 
See a great online article on this in the New York Times by J. Courtney Sullivan, May 3rd, 2013. Continuing with Diamonds Are Forever, there was a couple of scenes in the movie too, one in particular where they're transporting the diamonds in Frank's body. And when they land at the airport and they're, uh, the CIA guys, I think it was Felix Leiter and his guys, were asking where the diamonds are, uh, he says, elementary. <laughs> <laughs> because they were in the elementary, the elementary intestines ten, yeah. of the body. And so that, that's a little... A little play on words from, of course, Sherlock Holmes, where it's elementary, dear Watson, my dear Watson, which he never really said in the books. But it's a it's a play on words for that. And actually, we have a whole podcast on Sherlock Holmes and Bond, too. Take a listen to that one as well. Also, at the time, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor were like the thing. And the Burton-Taylor diamond was like 69 carats was purchased in 1969, and it made worldwide news. I mean, this was a big deal. That combined with Jacqueline Kennedy's jewelry, at the time, again, diamonds and emeralds, in the early 1960s, it put diamonds on everyone's mind. Everyone was thinking diamonds, and then the De Beers campaign and everything else. This was huge. Coincidence or Great Timing by Ian, the subject of diamonds, was ripe for the 1971 launch of diamonds are forever. Our next movie that we're going to look at is Moonraker, which was based on Ian Fleming's third novel, which was published in 1955. Rockets were just being developed after Von Braun's success with the Germans in World War II. The novel is about a rocket being developed and that will be tested by Drax's organization with the support of the British government. By the time the movie was made in, by Eon Productions in 1979, the writers had to change the story. Yeah, it was 1979, and man had already been to the moon and back. The space shuttles were under development. A story about a missile test wouldn't really cut it, and that's what the book was about. Trust me, the novel's really great. I, I love that book. Oh, that is a great read. It's one of my favorite Ian Fleming, James Bond novels. It really, it's exciting you have to suspend your belief a little bit because the times are different. But the read and the way it, it flows is just tremendous. Yeah, and when, at, at the time you wrote that book, that whole discussion about rockets was really, really cool and very topical. By the time they did the movie, they really yeah. I mean, nineteen fifty-five. He writes the book. I mean, we, the, the movie's in nineteen seventy-nine. We've been to the moon and back. We've been all over the place. We got probes going out in the space and everything else. So you you couldn't stick exactly to the book. Eon Productions had originally planned to film For Your Eyes Only after The Spy Who Loved Me, which is one of my all-time favorite Bond movies, maybe because that's the first one I saw in a theater. Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah. So, but, but because of the development of the shuttle in real life and the popularity of the two of the biggest science fiction films released in 1977, you had Star Wars, who had a second one planned for 1980, yeah. and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So two, Ian, great movies. two great movies. Yeah, great movies. Yeah. So, so EM Productions once and actually, there's a little bit of um, in some of the future films. There's some little plays and, and nods towards Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Like there's a one where it, he types in the code and the code pl actually plays. Bum, 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 yeah, actually bum. plays that from Close Encounters. Yeah, it's in Moonraker. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is yeah. in Moonraker. Yeah, that's yeah. right. In this one. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a nod to it, right? So EM Productions once again is being clever and watching the real world and what was successful and popular. 
They moved Moonraker up ahead of For Your Eyes Only to take advantage of this popularity and the success of science fiction movies and actual NASA advancements in space technologies. Real stuff. Real stuff. And the concept of a space station used in Moonraker was based on real life. Right, The Soviets had Salyut 1 in 1971, and the U.S. had Skylab up there in 1973. Yeah, nothing like the space stations in Moonraker the movie, but nonetheless, space stations were based on reality. Yeah, I like Moonraker. The first half of Moonraker, I think, is terrific. Yeah. The second half of uh, once they, the Once they get stuff, to space, it gets a little wonky. A little dicey. But um, mm-hmm. it's, again... Some incidences in Moonraker and stuff based on real-world stuff. Yeah, and stuff that was happening at the time. We're going to just move quickly to The Living Daylights. We just have one point, really, to make there. Living Daylights was, of course, written by Ian Fleming as part of his short story collection. It was the last thing he actually wrote and was published after his death. Octopussy and the Living Daylights collection of short stories in 1966. It was published. The big thing in the movie was Death of Spies, Smyriot Spion. And the idea of spies defecting, of course, is based on real stuff. Spies did defect in the real world. In fact, Nikolai Koklov, he was a spy, a Soviet spy, and he defected to the West in 1953. And he brought with him all kinds of spy gadgets, which we're going to talk about in a, in a moment. But the fact is that this stuff really happened. And again, in the Living Daylights, both the the, the short story collection and and the and the film, we see the concept of the spies defecting, and that's the the center stage of the Living Daylight. We also have Anatoly Galitsyn who defected in 1961 from Russia and wrote two books on KGB leadership practices. They use his name in the first Mission Impossible film as the, the one of the, the bad guys in the film. So we have Nikolai, we have Anatoly as two Russian defectors. We learned a lot about them from what they talk about in their gadgets yes. and what Anatoly wrote in his books. Ian Fleming was able to take some of that and incorporate that into his books. We're going to move now to License to Kill from 1989. Again, Timothy Dalton here. This is his second Bond film. I, I loved Timothy Dalton. There's a lot of people that didn't like him as Bond. But was he the most Fleming-like Bond, though? He was. He played Bond like Fleming wrote Bond. Very, very dark kind of character. And that's how Fleming wrote him. And I, I think from the shift from The Living Daylights to License to Kill, he was very good in Living Daylights. But in License to Kill, I think he's just terrific. Anyway, we're going to take a look at this. And the whole premise of this film is dealing with a drug lord from South America, Franz Sanchez. In 1972, the president of the United States... Richard Nixon said drug abuse was public enemy number one. And in 1986, President Reagan of the United States called for a nationwide crusade against drugs. So drugs infiltrating our country and affecting thousands of lives was definitely a popular topic during the decade surrounding the release of License to Kill. Fran Sanchez did not want to say just say no. 
Yeah, exactly. So Franz Sanchez, being a major drug dealer, he would have garnered a lot of attentions if the Department of Drug Enforcement Administration knew of his whereabouts. So the DEA's response to Sanchez being tracked to the United States would have probably warranted the response it got in the movie, if not a whole lot more. Yeah, it would have. It was a huge, top-of-mind subject. Drugs were infiltrated in the U.S. like crazy, and there was a big push to get drugs out. Yeah, I can imagine the DEA, some DEA guy going like, wait a minute, this guy's coming in and landing in, a, in the U.S. Oh, yeah. We can grab him. They're going after him. And that's what uh, they did in the movie. Very realistic, based on real life. And now we're going to move to Mission Impossible. Between GoldenEye in 1995 and Tomorrow Never Dies in 1997 comes the first in the series of Mission Impossible movies based on the 1960s television show. So, 1996 was a great time to capitalize on the spy movie fans just waiting for another Bond movie. And since Born Identity was not born until 2002, again, a great time. The Mission Impossible TV show, which I loved, certainly had an influence on the creation of the movie. Many fans of the TV series were looking forward to the first movie. While Phelps was the only character kept from the TV series, the mission was going to be fresh, full of action and intrigue. And the concept of a rogue agent trying to make things right was not new, but this mission was going to be done with passion. I mean, MacGyver-like gadgets and to some degree sophisticated gadgets, masks and deception all came from that TV show. The original show was more like an O. Henry play with surprise endings for the bad guys. And Martin Landau, who played Roland Hand in the original TV series, said he was interviewed and he said, after the first mission, the original was not an action adventure. It was more of a mind game. Yeah, it was. I mean, the ideal mission really was getting in and getting out without anyone ever knowing we were there. And this quote is from Martin Landau's Discusses Mission Impossible Movies blog on MTV, October 29th, 2009. And it was archived from the original on December 28th, 2009. I mean, the nonstop action is truly new to the movie. In the, in the TV show, I remember there was one where they go in and there's gold in a, in a room. And they get this device in there to melt the gold. And they catch the, the gold as it, it goes through this drain they created. So nobody has any idea anybody was in there, and they go in and the gold's gone. Yeah, that's the kind of show it was. It was really a mind game. It was stealth. They did things stealth. It wasn't a big action pack fighting boom kind of show. But the movie well, transitioned to more of an action film. Yeah, that series, yeah, the, 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 the film series really has become just action. What, what, Non-stop. What stunts can we be doing? Um, and, and bring those in. They're done very well. I'm not yes. saying that critically. It's just I, I do, it's different. I do like the Mission Impossible series so far, and I think they're going to be a challenge for other spy genre categories. Perhaps Bond. Perhaps even Bond. So we think the first film for the Mission Impossible series was influenced by, one, the TV show for basic concepts, self-destructing mission messages, music, masks, etc. Secondly, the timing in between Bond films, and thirdly, the worldwide locations, like shooting in Prague, was definitely Bond-influenced, 
as were the opening scenes during the credits, giving glimpses into the action about to unfold in the movie. Yeah, and Mission Impossible was actually, you say that you're taking the locations like in Bond. Yeah. Mission Impossible was one of the first big budget films to actually film in Prague, and now Bond, Bourne, and Mission Impossible have all filmed there. Of course, the real Cold War spying going on after, what, atomic data, list of spies, etc. It's a regular mission of spies. I mean, we have a few examples of this happening, and this is what happens in, in, the, in the Mission Impossible movie where they're trying to get the list of spies. I mean, there was a guy back in 1985, Aldrich Rick Ames, and he actually, in June of that year, took a list of the names of some of the agency's best Soviet sources. And in there he had code names for them and, and, and tied the names with the code name. Uh, he took that and actually gave it to the Russians ah. as, a, as a double agent. And in 2015 we even had a US, USCAA was concerned that China had stolen information on U.S. federal employees that might expose the real names of our spies abroad. That concept is there in Mission Impossible. It's a real-world kind of a thing, and a thing we really need to worry about. Yeah, it's grounded in reality. All right, we're going to take a quick look at The Born Identity, the 2002 film. 9-11 made the producers think that the script with the CIA looking like the bad guys might be too sensitive for audiences in the aftermath of the attack on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and so on on September 11, 2001. They actually filmed alternative openings and ending sequences, but when the original was tested with the audiences, the audience seemed to accept it pretty well. So the alternative opening and closing scenes were relegated to the bonus section of the DVDs. So if you want to look at an article about this, go see the 15 things you didn't know about the Bourne franchise by Josh Rausch. It was July 29, 2016, and it was an online article. Yeah, there was another thing that influenced this film a little bit too. Now the director of the movie was a guy named Doug Lyman, and his father was named Arthur Lyman. And he was the chief counsel for the U.S. in the investigation of the Iran, the Iran Contra affair, and there was a you know the main char- one of the main characters, if you will, in that in that whole Iran Contra affair was a guy named Oliver North. He was a lieutenant colonel in the Marines, and he was convicted, which was later vacated due to the work of Arthur Lyman. Now Doug Lyman says there's a lot of Oliver North in Chris Cooper's portrayal of Conklin in The Born Identity. I mean, the, if you l- listen to the way he talks and you l- watch the clips from the, the newscasts about um, Oliver North, there's a lot of similarity in how they portrayed themselves. And now we're going to move on to Casino Royale. So do you mean the 1950s TV show? the 1960s spoof, or the 2006 Eon production film? Uh, no, no, yes. Yeah, we're going to talk about the Eon Productions film in 2006. And here's one example. The popularity of Texas Hold'em worked its way into the film. Instead of, as written, Chemin de Fer and Baccarat, the game that Fleming talks about in the novel. And here also you have... Born Identity, which came out in 2002, that more realistic approach 
may have affected and influenced Casino Royale to be more grounded in basics. Yeah, I mean, the first, the Casino Royale was coming off of the last Pierce Brosnan and then the film Die Another Day. And if you if you look at what they did there and in, in the films leading up from Roger through Pierce there, things kind of got a little out of... Out invisible of the, cars. Yeah, you got out of the book. You got invisible cars. You got all, all that goofiness. Computer that graphic happens. interface crap that was yeah, going the, on. Yeah, you think about Moonraker or and, even in Moonraker with yeah. the laser beams. Yeah. I, they they seem to want to hold, totally reboot this series and get back to the basics. And Born Identity may have helped them think that was the way to go. Yeah. So in Casino Royale, you really do see a, a very much more straightforward uh, pr- approach to the movie. Really few gadgets. And very basic in the execution of the of the of the whole unfolding of the plot. Yeah, it was really let's reboot and get back to the basics. Oh, the weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. And since we've no place to go, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. And now we're going to move on. Instead of just talking about an individual spy movie with how reality influenced the spy movie. We're going to talk about a bunch of movies all together. And in particular here, we're going to look at James Bond and James Bond on skis. He's got to love Bond on skis. Yeah. He doesn't do it enough. George Lazenby, who was an avid skier, is the first James Bond in the in-production films to take to the skis in Honor Majesty's Secret Service in 1969 with many of these scenes being filmed in Muren, Switzerland, which was a beautiful little town. Tom and I were there a couple of years ago, and it is fabulous when we went up to Schiltorn and Piz Gloria. Unbelievable. Well, and Willie Bogner's filming of the skiing sequences. Like, he created the way he was holding the camera was different than people had done that he, before. He was skiing backwards, I think. Yeah, too. with, like, the camera between his legs yeah. kind of a thing. Yeah, and there were some injuries. I think the helicopter scenes, they had some incidents i think with that yeah but the but the whole the whole willie bog willie bogner filming this thing you hadn't seen that done that way before in film right so that was really a first for how that was done ian productions was was the first at a lot of stuff i mean they really their approach to this whole bond concept is unique fresh and innovative here on her majesty's secret service you have bond on skis for the first time so here in Murin and in Schiltorn, Piz Gloria, where Blofeld's Allergy Research Institute was located in the film, is where a lot of this stuff is going on. And so there are major ski scenes in Honor Majesty's Secret Service, in addition to the bobsled runs, scenes, and so on. So there's a lot of snow scenes here. Sean Connery never skied on uh, on snow in the movies. He was more of a warm climate kind of bond. Yeah, now and Jamaica, where, the Bahamas, you know, it was nice. And where they filmed on Her Majesty's really was a ski resort area. Yes. That stop at Berg is a major party place, and then you ski from there to go down to Murren. And the bobsled, there used to be a bobsled there. They took it out, and then they put back in for the movie. Yeah, they actually built one for the movie. In a night scene, Bond begins skiing down Piz Gloria, and of course, he is shot at. Then he's pursued by Blofeld's henchmen on skis. Even Blofeld joins the pursuit. Telly Savalas was, I thought it was a great Blofeld. Yeah, he was great. He was good. He was a different looking kind of guy, but that, that arrogant 
attitude that only Telly Telly Savalas could could like just ooze out. It's like it's, kept waiting for a, who loves you, baby. <laughs> loves you, baby. Uh, with flares and machine guns, they're pursuing Bond. Of course, it's a beautiful scene. It's a night scene. It's it's actually gorgeously shot, and of course. They know the mountain better than Bond, so they're in hot pursuit, and they're catching him. It's a great chase scene, this one on skis, with well-trained and skilled agents pursuing them on skis. So these guys, because they're in the mountains, and Blofeld's headquarters is up at Chiltorn, 10,000 feet in the air, they, they ought to know how to ski, these guys, and they do. So these are agents of Blofeld who really know how to ski. Yeah, and I love like they're skiing down and the you kind of go off the rooftop and stuff. Yeah, that was really cool. Yeah, there were a lot of great scenes in there, and uh, with Diana Rigg and Bond escaping to skiing, uh, great shots. And again, we just saw this on the big screen last night in in a in a theater near Chicago. It's it was awesome to see the ski scenes on the oh, big screen. Beautiful. Yeah, that was gorgeous. And in the 1977 Bond film, The Spy Who Loved Me, we have one of the best no-ski sequences in any spy movie ever. Really, in any movie for that for that matter. Really, it's one of the best scenes in any film, period. It's just terrific. And I love The Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah. This is a great film based on an Ian Fleming title, The Spy Who Loved Me, but has nothing to do with the book because Fleming did not like the book. He didn't like the way it came out. He didn't want to turn it into a movie. But anyway, so they, they wrote this from the ground up, and it's a terrific movie. Well, but yeah, I digress. And, yeah, and the ski <laughs> stuff, right, in the pre-title, Bond, he gets a message from MI6 saying they need him. Of course, while he's sleeping with a woman in an Austrian winter mountain chalet. Beautiful chalet. Yeah, so, so he leaves with this red backpack on his back and skis, and she radios to her counterpart saying that he's leaving, and we have this skate, ski chase scene. The pursuers are shooting at him. At one point, point, Bond turns around and he shoots one of the foreign agents with his ski pole gun. Yeah. Then he continues, eventually skiing off this mountain, right, and thousands of feet beneath him, only to pop a parachute with the Union Jack on it. Yeah. And he glides to safety. It is a fabulous scene. Yeah, and it's really one of those most iconic scenes ever in a film. You see that in lots of, you know, things when they talk about movies and filming stuff. Now, this was actually filmed in Canada, and the stuntman who did this was a guy named Rick Sylvester, and they did it in one take. They had to wait forever for the, move, for the weather to get right for this thing, and just when they got it right, he went up there, one take, they got it. Yeah, they had, they had I don't know how many cameras they had going, and a lot of the cameras missed the action because of one reason or another, and there was one camera that caught it, and they were thrilled, and... One take, boom. But you'll see as the parachute opens up and he kicks off the skis, one of the skis almost interferes with the chute. It comes up. Yeah, he, the he almost gets down. himself. He almost, he almost was in trouble there. Yeah, well, too, I love the fact that they, they got that idea from an ad. I don't remember what the ad was for, but there was a, it was a picture ad of this guy skiing off of this, this, this mountain. It ended up being that was just something done in a studio that was not yeah. actually the the ad was not really yeah. uh, uh, the guy jumping, but they did it here in the movie. Yeah, the cool thing about the the old Bond films and you know other than Die Another Day where they had all the CGI stuff, which was annoying, 
they actually did this stuff. They found this guy to go, here, you want to ski off this mountain? Yeah, he had, John, never, he had John, never done it before yeah, either. Ski off a mountain. I'm sure the parachute will open. Don't worry about I, I it. I think he got the equivalent of like 20000 or $30,000, something like that. Yeah, for, it was, was, wasn't enough for me, I'll tell you. No. So, again, skiing and pursuit by trained assassins on skis right here in the movie. So, And do things like this happen in real life? We're going to find out in a couple of minutes. In the next film we're going to talk about, for your eyes only, Bond is pursued by sharpshooter skiers and those enemy agents on those specially equipped motorcycles. Remember the ones with the spikes in the wheels? Guns. And they have the guns on them. Yeah, yeah that's really cool. I mean, they're, and they're hauling down this mountain in the ski scene, and eventually they end up at a ski jump. So Bond gets in the elevator, and he's kind of stuck. He's going to have to do this ski jump, and he really doesn't want to do it. No, but, you know, he's Bond. He's Bond, but, yeah. yeah. So he, he's like, okay, I'm going to do this. So he's going to do this jump, and he knows that her, his pursuers are down at the bottom where he's going to land. So they know they're going to they're going to be there for him, right? And he goes, and he does this jump, and then the pursuit continues, and they're still on those motorcycles chasing Bond, who's on skis, and there's even that really cool sequence where they're skiing down that bobsled run. Yeah. Now, what I love about this scene is it incorporates three things that I love, but I can't, I won't do. Right. I love bobsleds. I right. think they're so cool. I love watching bobsleds, but I don't have the guts to do a bobsled. Well, if you remember the conversation about gondolas, yeah. I didn't even like the gondolas that much. I'm really <laughs> not doing a bobsled. Right. But they're skiing in this bobsled run, which was really neat. Yeah, that's really hard to do. The ski jumps. I love like when the Olympics are on and you see the ski jumps. It's really cool. I love watching it, but there's no way I'd ever yeah, do that. I mean, yeah. And I, quite honestly, I don't really ski. <laughs> yeah. I like skiing, but... Uh, I'm with you on the bobsleds and jumping off mountains. I'm not doing that. Yeah, especially if you're doing it while being pursued by these highly trained skiers and henchmen who are going to come after you while you're on skis. And that's the point. Here again, you have trained agents who can ski like pros chasing Bond, another agent, enemy agent for them. And things like this happened in real life which we're going to take a look at in just another minute we're going to look at one more film view to a kill and then we're going to go into some of the things that happen in real life in a view to a kill bond does it all on snow from skiing to snowmobiling to riding one of the runners from the snowmobile as a snowboard and snowboarding was not that popular at that time. So here he's pursued by helicopters, snowmobiles, skiers, every well-trained assassin. But of course he's bond. He finally escapes and he escapes to a British sub that's disguised as an iceberg. I love when the hatch opens and it shows the union Jack and he goes, Oh, there you go. I'm rescued. And he crawls in there. Of course, it's a beautiful, woman in there of course yeah and i think they have some vodka i think is what they're start drinking anyways it's kind of a neat scene but he had very a very very talented mob of agents trained for winter pursuit behind him all the way even in the living daylights there's a snow pursuit as bond and caramel malovi escape using her cello case as a sled 
and oh yeah, I love that. He, he, her, her cello to steer a, a makeshift s- snow vehicle. Yeah, and then again, they're pursued by trained agents. I think, I think one of the producers may have been Cubby or somebody didn't like the whole idea of the using the case as a sled. Somebody hated that idea. Yeah, and I actually think it worked pretty well. And then they showed them, hey, you know, this is how we're going to do it. And they thought, oh yeah, that is actually pretty cool. Yeah, it was. It was. It was fun. Yeah, they did. They were trying not to get too campy and too, you know, tongue and cheeky and stuff like that. But it actually works in the film, I think. Again, he's pursued though by trained assassins on skis and on snow. So there you go. And even Inspector, there's snow scenes as well. So what is happening here? In real life, of course, there were and are specialty teams in various military branches throughout the world who are expert at traveling on skis, infiltrating locations on skis, and doing other espionage stuff that very much depends on how well-trained they are on skiing and moving through heavy snow conditions. Yeah, you're right, Tom. I mean, for example, in World War II, the U.S. did not have a mountain division in their military. And, of course, mountains, they come with snow. So inspired by the Finnish mountaineer troops, this guy Charles Maynard Dole, who was the head of a ski patrol and an Olympic skier and climber, he began the U.S. military ski troops, which were brought into action just before Pearl Harbor. They had all kinds of crazy training. This this is all real stuff. They trained at 13,000 feet in the Colorado mountains. I'd be out of breath. At minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit, which is about um, 34.4 degrees Celsius, minus 34.4 degrees Celsius, with 90 pounds of gear, just the men, the pack, their packs, and skis. They were pushed to the limit. So this is the first time we're doing this. This will turn out to be a true mission impossible in World War II, as this became the 10th Mountain Division of the U.S. Army. They were engaged against the Japanese when Japan invaded the two islands off of Alaska, Atu and Kiska. In landing in fog and snow, they were able to make the Japanese retreat. But confused in the fog and the snow and everything, our troops were shooting at each other, and there were 18 killed. So they went back for more training with mock battles and sub-zero conditions. So this, none of this is easy. They were called upon in 1944, though, in Italy, where the Allies were bogged down trying to take the Apennine Mountains. The Fifth Army could not advance towards Germany. Each ridge in the mountains had additional German defenses, so this was very tough conditions. And without the training they just went through, they would never have been able to make an advance here. The 10th Mountain Division assessed what was needed, and they decided they had to take this Mount Belvedere. And to do that, they had to take this Riva Ridge first. So they had this all mapped out. This is 2,000 feet up, steep cliffs, three to four feet of snow. And they're doing this. This is real life. Yeah, these are real people really doing this stuff. real life stuff. They climbed the unclimbable, and they took Riva Ridge. And the engineers, this is another incredible thing. The engineers erected an ingenious tramway to move wounded and supplies up and down the mountain. Yeah, how, how do you I come mean, up with this stuff? They're doing this on the fly right there. They're, they're doing this. This is real stuff. The pursuing assaults were successful, and the path 
was open to Germany thanks to this 10th Mountain Division, trained to battle in treacherous snow conditions. They prevailed at great cost for the campaign, with 975 killed, 3,871 wounded, and 20 prisoners of war. But they prevailed. And you should look this stuff up. And if you wanted to find out more information on this, check out this website, 10th10th, 10th MTN, DIV, ASSOC, 10th Mountain Division Association.org, or lastridge.com. It's a fabulous story, and it's real. In another World War II real-life adventure, the Germans controlled a heavy water plant in Norway, and heavy water was needed to make nuclear weapons. So on February 16th of 1943, Operation Gunnerside began. Six Norwegian commandos were dropped by parachute to join the Swallow team on the ground. After a few days of cross-country skiing, they joined the Swallow team. The final assault on the heavy water plant was set for February 27th and 28th in 1943. The Germans controlled the plant and wanted to produce the heavy water and ship it to Germany. The heavy water plant was protected by mines, lights, and more due to an earlier failed raid. I mean, this is just like you see in movies, right? This, well, well, this is really happening. Yeah, And they actually did make a movie of this called yes. The Heroes of Telemark in 1965 that had Kirk Douglas in it. Yes. Um, and which, which was actually a really good movie. The Swallow Team, with the six paratroopers, fought a winter river in a ravine and climbed a steep hill. It, the cool thing is they followed this railroad track right into the plant because they, were, they had to deliver stuff into this plant because a Norwegian agent inside the plant supplied a detailed layout of the plant as well as the schedule of what they did and when they did stuff in the plant. This is just like from Russia with love when Bond went to go retrieve the consulate plans from Tanya in the mosque. I yeah, mean, absolutely. So this is real life that they're doing this and they're getting into this plant because this guy on the inside drew them a little map. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is fabulous. It helps when you have a map. It's yeah. like in Born, right? In, in Born Identity, he yeah. grabs the the map off the wall as he's trying to figure out how to escape. Yes. Yeah. Having maps is helpful. Yeah. Except here, it's real life. So the team entered the plant by a basement cable tunnel. They set explosives and they escaped. They left behind a. This is the a cool part here. They left behind a Thompson submachine gun to make it look like. The, British forces did this so they wouldn't get any local resistance uh, reprisals. So they, they wouldn't get their own guys beat up and killed and stuff from the local guys. So cause they already hated the Brits, yeah. the Germans. So Make that, them that think was no problem. Brits, yeah. yeah. So, but I think that was all part of the plan and it, it actually worked. Yeah. And the Germans were desperate. So they loaded some heavy water on a ferry bound for Germany and the Norwegian resistance sank the ferry and all of the heavy water. Yeah. Isn't that cool? You, you could Google Gunnerside, and you'll hear all about this real-life story. Yeah, there was also a film in 1948 about this, and I can't pronounce it, so I'm not going to try. Um, and then in 1979, there was a Canadian and t uh, movie and TV series called A Man Called Intrepid that was based off of this. So you have a couple different film versions of this that you can, that you can watch. Yeah. So, again, th this is real-life stuff. And as we saw, it worked its way into many, many, many movies, and spy movies in particular. 
the bottom line is here, many of the scenes we've seen in spy movies and above that we just talked about in all the Bond movies, they have a basis in reality. People are indeed specially trained for these special operations. And so these specially trained personnel in the Bond movies for all the winter pursuits are believable. Some of the stunts are fantastic, of course, in the Bond movies, skiing over roofs and off mountains and whatever. But so were some of the real-life challenges that was overcome by the uh, 10th Mountain Division, for instance. Well, 2,000 feet, all the backpacks freezing, 30 below. So, And the Norwegian troops, too. The winter definitely presents its challenges. Yeah. So, again, based on real life and believable stuff. Lastly, let's look at gadgets. As we know, gadgets are prominent in the James Bond 007 movies by Eon Production, as Q proves to be quite the inventor. They are also present in the Mission Impossible series shows with the masks, the high-tech devices like the climbing gloves, the camera, glo- the camera glasses yeah. in Mission Impossible 1. I mean, you talk about Google Glasses or, yeah, right. or, or Halo or, or um, the Microsoft uh, HoloLens way before its time in Mission Impossible, so that was kind of cool. Now, in the Fleming books, gadgets were less prominent. In Casino Royale, the first James Bond 007 movie, there are some... There's some gadgets, but they're, they're not spectacular gadgets. He's got the, the fibrillator and things like that, but, yeah. I mean, it wasn't like an invisible car or anything. No, not an invisible car. But the, I love the communications back to uh, MI6 so they could monitor yes. what was going on when he was and in That's the believable. Yeah, that's believable. Now, Le Chiffre carries razors in various places, which was an early high-tech. In the books. Yeah, in the books. And one of the high-tech gadgets was a cane that doubled as a gun, which really was how they first tried to kill Bond at the casino table. Yeah, in the book, it was kind of cool because you're thinking, oh, okay, it is a gadget, but kind of a believable gadget. You know, yeah. Cane that might fire a, pistol, a bullet. Yeah, absolutely. And then this, go, this goes on in other Fleming novels as well uh, with underwater equipment, uh, the briefcase from From Russia with Love, which is different than what it contains in the movie. But they're there, and but less obvious and less of a focus. There really was a Q branch in MI6, and they came up with gadgets. It was operational at the time Fleming was writing uh, by a guy named Charles Fraser Smith, who Fleming knew. Yeah, and, and, and this guy, Smith, came up with a lot of, lot of gadgets in, in real life for MI6. Yeah. So you've got, you've got to have the gadget makers. Again, in this really cool book, For Your Eyes Only, Ian Fleming plus James Bond by Ben McIntyre, he suggests that Fraser Smith made things like a hairbrush that had a map and a saw, cameras hidden, hidden in cigarette lighters, invisible ink, magnetized matches that could double as a compass, and so on. So there was real stuff, and that real stuff influenced the movies and served, in many cases, as a basis of the extraordinary gadgets that come to life in the films thanks for listening to part two of our podcast and how real world events and other movies could affect and work their way into spy movies we'll do additional podcasts on this topic in the future please continue to download our podcasts check our website spymovienavigator.com for our latest updates on films podcasts and videos and please tell your friends about us and if you like our podcasts give us a five-star review on itunes that helps us do more thanks This is Tom Pizzotto and Dan Silvestri. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We are SpyMovieNavigator.com, the worldwide community of spy movie fans, spy movie podcasts, videos, discussions, and more.